On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Jim Spiegel about idealism and Christian theology. So we'll cover all sorts of topics like what is idealism, who are some figures in the Christian tradition who have been idealists, what is Barclay and idealism, and how does it differ from idealism in general, why has there actually been a surge in idealistic sort of ideas, is idealism similar to Philip Goff's panpsychism in any sense, what are the main possible philosophical application, so to speak, of idealism. And in what sense is an idealist account consistent with traditional theological doctrines such as the incarnation and resurrection, and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast, an online center, uh, institution, trying to be, hopefully one day, uh, that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And one of the ways we've tried to explain that and what that looks like is to extol a particular set of intellectual virtues. Um, not all of these are make total sense, so let me explain them. So charity, curiosity, critical thinking, cheerful confessionalism— Everybody, I think, gets for the most part what charity means. Uh, sometimes people who are listening to us who are more classically inclined think, oh, curiosity is, is bad. No, we just mean that in the sense of being interested in other people, interested in their ideas, and being open to reason, as James 3 tells us to. So we try to come with an open hand to all these interviews, whether we agree with a person or not. Sometimes we really agree with somebody, and sometimes we really don't. Um, and that's part of the beauty of the podcast is to allow people to think well. We want our listeners to think for themselves and not to always tell them what to think. There's a lot of podcasts out there that are trying to tell you this is what you should believe. And we want to help you think and form habits of mind that can help you become a thinker for yourself. So that's some of what we're trying to do here. Um, today, I'm looking forward to introducing you all to Dr. Jim Spiegel. So I have benefited from his work uh, much in the past, particularly he has edited two volumes on idealism. One is more theologically inclined and one's more philosophically inclined. And it, it has a range of very important essays from very significant thinkers. And I've always been intrigued by idealism. I think it probably started with reading Jonathan Edwards uh, and then reading all the literature surrounding that. And then I had a professor uh, for my first epistemology course, Doug Blunt, and he basically, I don't remember how he said it, but he said something along the lines of, I was almost an idealist and then I wasn't, but he never really followed up with it or explained it or anything. And then I become super curious about like, what does all this mean? So now we have Dr. Spiegel, who is an expert in this to help us understand what idealism is, what we should think about it, and all things related to it. So before we jump in, Dr. Spiegel, before, like, if somebody has no idea who you are, give me a little context. Where are you at now? What do you do? And then maybe what was it that interested you to think about writing on idealism, having se several edited volumes together on this as well? All right, good. Thank you, Jordan, for having me. This is this is great. Um, let me uh, go backwards from the present moment. I am a John Templeton uh, research fellow at Hillsdale College uh, here in Hillsdale, Michigan. And uh, before that, for a year and a half, I was a head of school 
at a, a Christian K through 12 in Bloomington, Indiana, called Lighthouse Christian Academy. And then for <clears throat> two and a half decades um, prior to that, I was a, a philosophy professor at Taylor University. And um, I did my graduate work, my, my doctorate at Michigan State. <clears throat> um, and uh, before that, my master's in philosophy at Southern Mississippi in Hattiesburg. And before that, I did my undergraduate at a, a little uh, liberal arts college in Jackson, Mississippi called Bellhaven College. Now it's Bellhaven University. While I was there, um, I majored in biology. And uh, since it was a liberal arts school, I took courses um, across the whole spectrum of disciplines, including some philosophy classes, really fell in love with philosophy, studying under the late, great Wynne Kenyon, who was the philosophy department there. And it was through him that I became acquainted with Barclay and idealism, not that he was sympathetic. Uh, he was not. He was, I think, <clears throat> more... Uh, in line with, uh, say, a common sense realist, uh, Thomas Reed uh, type approach. But um, I found Barclay and, and his idealist philosophy intriguing from the start. And um, I remember being finding the argument compelling. His thesis is that to be is to be perceived or to be a perceiver. So all that exists on, on the Barclayan immaterialist view, that would be the, the preferred way of uh, referring to his thesis or view. Uh, according to his immaterialism, all that exists are minds and ideas. And all physical objects are dependent for their existence on some mind. And, of course, Barclay was a, he's a bishop, uh, Anglican bishop, Bishop of Cloyne in Ireland very uh, devout, uh, orthodox, uh, theological mind, who was concerned about the um, growing agnosticism and skepticism in Europe um, in the early 18th century when he lived. And uh, as I contemplated this, this thesis, um, it occurred to me, I remember exactly where I was actually, walking back to my dorm one night <clears throat> when it hit me, that uh, for the Barclayan immaterialist, uh, there is no mind-body problem, at least as far as a supposed interaction between soul and body is concerned, um, <clears throat> because the physical body just is ideas, and ideas are really the minds naturally traffic in ideas, right? And so that was sort of the first moment when I realized, hey, there's some explanatory power here that goes beyond what I'd anticipated. So I I looked into it more and more and more. And by the time by the time I was a working on my doctorate at Michigan State, I was a convinced Barclayan and I uh eventually wrote my dissertation on Barclay's idealism or immaterialism as an apologetic device. Very awesome. So We've, I guess, defined a little bit of what idealism is, and I know I mentioned somebody like Edwards. Are there other figures you think in the tradition, Christian tradition anyway, that might be appropriately categorized as an uh, idealist, whether it's Barclayan or not? 
Good. So yes, plenty. And just to clarify our terms from the outset, uh, idealism can be a hard word to define. We need to be careful here. It, it, it's somewhat ambiguous. Uh, generally speaking, we can say that idealism emphasizes the centrality of mind or mind dependence. According to the idealist, minds are the ultimate basis for either for all that is real or at least all that is known. So it takes two basic forms. You have metaphysical and epistemological idealism. Epistemological idealists say that all that is known or can be known is mind-dependent. A classic example of that is Immanuel Kant and some of the German idealists that followed him. For Kant, all that we know is mind-dependent in the sense that everything we think or experience is through certain innate categories of the mind. Now, metaphysical idealists say that this is a much stronger thesis, really as strong as you can get. The metaphysical idealist says that all that exists are minds and their ideas. Uh, versions of this view are, are found in, as you mentioned, the, the great American theologian Jonathan Edwards uh, and early modern philosophers, including Leibniz, Berkeley, of course. Hegel would be, he's called an absolute idealist. I think he would certainly fall into this category. And then you have contemporary thinkers like John Foster, who wrote a, a wonderful book called uh, the World, A World for Us. Howard Robinson is very sympathetic. Uh, Nicholas Rescher, <clears throat> who's still going, I think, in his in his 10th decade on this planet. He might be the most published philosopher in American history, but um, he'd be sympathetic as well. And then you have a number of Christian uh, thinkers, contemporary Christian thinkers, who are at least very friendly to metaphysical idealism, including Doug Blount, who, whom you mentioned, uh, my good friend, colleague, and co-editor, uh, Steve Cowan, Joshua Ferris, and Mark Hamilton, who, who also served as uh, co-editors on uh, the first volume of that Bloomsbury um, idealism series. And then William Wainwright, Charles Tolliver, Mark Height, Keith Ward. Uh, there are a lot of them out there uh, with varying de degrees of, of conviction. Yeah. So it, you've mentioned several names. They seem to be early modern period significantly and later would you say, is there versions of idealism that predate this, that we find a large swath of them in patristic or medieval era that we, we could pick out? I'm not confident enough in my uh, history of theology, yeah. particularly in that era, to be able to speak confidently. But you do have, it's interesting, you have some someone like Al-Ghazali in the Islamic philosophical tradition in the medieval period, who would very much be on board. But, you know, a lot of these categories don't emerge until later. And so I'm, you know, that would be my main reason of, for hesitance to apply this moniker to, say, one of the patristics. It's, these are just not categories according to which they work. You know, I, yeah. you even have to, even though I think this is a view that's most at home with scripture. Mm -hmm. And I've argued for this in an uh, article I published in the late 90s called uh, The Theological Orthodoxy of Barclay's Immaterialism, because these are concepts that 
you know, are not or categories that are not used in scripture, it takes some careful work to demonstrate just how home at home it is in scripture. And I would say there are even, you might say, some scriptural endorsements of the theory. Yeah, no, that's helpful. I've got lots of questions. One of them that comes to mind is I've seen quite a few people be interested in like Philip Goff's panpsychism sort of stuff. Um, where that, I guess the, the thesis would just be that everything has some sort of mental consciousness. Um, in what senses would you say this Barclayan idealism might be different from something like that? Good. So actually the two views couldn't be more different in, in one important sense. According to, to panpsychism, Conscious awareness, some level of awareness, if if not thought, you know, just awareness, um, is pervasive in the universe throughout the physical cosmos, occurring in all physical objects that are sufficiently complex. Well, Barclays and materialism denies that material objects can be conscious at all, because only spirits are conscious, only spirits or souls, or minds, he would use those terms synonymously, can be conscious and perceive and have thoughts. So another question, you sent me an essay in Philosophy Compass, I think it was. I think you mentioned in in that one, and maybe it was somewhere else, but that, that's the one that's coming to my mind anyway, about there being a surge in immaterialism in general. Do you think there's a reason for a surge of interest in this particular outlook? I mean, it seems to me when I read a lot of at least philosophy of mind stuff, there has been a surge in materialism. So what, what's going on with the surge in immaterialism and why might that be the case? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there are a variety of factors there, um, including certain developments in some scientific fields, some of which you know, have been familiar for several decades, but um, the more the field, in this case, say physics, advances, uh, the more we understand, um, well, the truth of relativity theory, which is something that Berkeley anticipated by a few centuries, which was really appalling to a lot of people in his day, you know, (laughs) to suggest that space and time are not absolute, right? that was frightening or just um, out of bounds for a lot of people. Of course, now we understand that to be the case. And even the idea that time can slow down with velocity and, and uh, increased mass. So um, when you consider those things, as well as the, the perceiver uh, dependence of subatomic quantum phenomena, um, that too seems to point in this direction. You, there are a number of contemporary physicists who are seriously proposing that the world just is a sort of hologram. It's a projection of sorts. Um, one physicist um, has suggested <laughs> that um, at least it would be consistent with contem- contemporary thought in this area that, that maybe um, the world as we know it really is a kind of um, matrix projection. Um, sometimes 
Yeah, usually art imitates reality. Other times, reality imitates art. In this case, anyone who would maintain that, you know, is suggesting that actually that Matrix scenario, which we all found entertaining, could be the literal truth. That isn't idealism, per se, but if you supplant the central um, computer or whatever um, uh, technology it is that is projecting that that world with the mind of God, you've basically got Barclay's thesis. Um, there are certain developments in psychology that um, actually have been known for uh, now a couple of centuries, but it's significant also in terms of how it um, confirms the Barclayan thesis, something called the heterogeneity of sense perception. Um, Barclay predicted that if, um, <clears throat> if, if a person who had been blind from birth was able to regain uh, or to gain for the first time their sight, they would not recognize, say, the shapes of objects just by the way they look. He believed that uh, there's a heterogeneity in, among the senses in, in, in that sense, that that tangible shape is not necessarily coordinated or, or associated with, with visible shape, for example. Um, that's one of the implications of his theory. People balked at that, said, no, that's not right. You know, somebody gets their sight for the first time. If they've felt, you know, coffee mugs all their life, they could take a look at one, even if they've just been able to see for five minutes and know that that's a coffee mug. Well, it happened, I think, in the late 1720s or early 1730s, two cases of people who, who gained their sight, who'd never seen before. And they they, somebody was aware of, of Barclay enough to say, hey, let's, let's run this experiment before they uh, learned uh, to see um, and associate too much and, and see if they, they do recognize these objects. And sure, sure enough, you know, they put, say, a coffee mug in a, a, a box and a um, uh, chandelier or whatever, different objects in front of them and say, hey, which one is the coffee mug? And and they couldn't do it until they touched it. And then ah, they got associate. They, they were able to associate the tangible shape with the visual shape. And um, so that's, yeah, again, one of the implications of his theory. He, he, he thought that all these things are, are developed behaviorally. It's kind of conditioning um, where we learn to associate uh, different qualities or attributes of things through experience. So those are, uh, you might say, kind of scientific developments. But more recently, um, <clears throat> there have been a number of innovations by scholars, you know, including some of the ones I named, who um, have demonstrated uh, a number of theoretical and practical benefits of um, Barclayan immaterialism. And including everything from philosophy of mind, you know, you know, dealing with the um, or dissolving the mind body problem, or at least making it much more um, uh, 
easy to understand how we can be both body and mind without an interaction problem. Philosophy of science, <clears throat> theological aesthetics, even spiritual formation. So it's, um, I think, a, a case where you have um, a, sur a slow, you say, surge or, or, or trend of increasing interest because people are becoming more aware of the theoretical and practical benefits of the, of the theory. Yeah, which is a nice segue for me to be able to ask more about those benefits that come from an immaterialist or a Barclayan idealistic account. Um, you could talk about whatever philosophical applications these might have or theological applications in your mind. I think you early on mentioned like the mind-body problem and how this had a lot of explanatory power for that. I don't know if you want to unpack that or something else, but I'd be curious in your mind, what are the, the several like biggest benefits or payoffs? Sure. Before I do that, let me explain Barclay's basic argument for the thesis, um, which I've not done yet for uh, listeners who might not be familiar. So his main argument, basic rationale here, is that physical, ar uh, uh, physical objects just are uh, collections of sensible qualities. There's nothing more to the apple than the redness, the solidity, the sweetness, the, uh, the smoothness, and, and so on. Any, anything you point to in the apple is going to be another sensible or perceivable quality. Well, sensible qualities are just ideas, and ideas exist only when perceived. Therefore, Physical objects exist only when perceived. That is, to be is to be perceived. So that's Barclay's thesis. The full thesis, though, is to be is to be a, is to be perceived or to be a perceiver, right? So nothing exists, no sensible qualities, no ideas exist except in a perceiving mind. So anytime anything exists, that implies some perceiving mind, and I'll talk about the implications of that in a minute. He has some other arguments that are more specifically directed to his nemesis. John Locke and his idea that there's such a thing as a material substratum, an unthinking, unperceivable, I know not what, as Locke puts it, that underlies the qualities of things. Locke recognized that uh, when you look at an apple or a coffee mug, there has to be something that explains that all of those qualities stick together, as it were. When you move the mug, it's not like its color goes one direction and its shape or solidity goes another. It's all a bundle. They stay together. How do you explain the unity of objects? And how do you explain the fact that, that they persist through time? So that's why you need material substratum, Locke says, even though he literally admits he doesn't know what he's talking about when he calls it an I know not what. Well, you don't need a material substratum when you have God, right? An omnipotent, uh, all-perceiving agent who can sustain everything in existence and uh, ensure that there is such unity and persistence through time. So you don't need material substratum. It's, uh, it's superfluous. And by Occam's razor, you know, what is explained by X number of, of entities is needlessly explained by more. And so... Barclay's view wins the, the parsimony contest for sure. Um, he also argues that even the idea of 
an unperceived object is a, is unintelligible. It's you can't imagine it because if you try to imagine it, you'd be perceiving something in your imagination. I don't know if that argument's any good, but he used that as well. So you have Occam's razor. You have these arguments that he uses, and then there's a theological argument. It's very basic that I present in a a paper, uh, actually an article in volume two of the Idealism and Christianity series um, that is as succinct an argument for this as you're going to find. And it is this. It's a biblical argument, beginning with what's clear in passages like Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1, that, that God sustains the world from moment to moment. Okay, God is called divine conservation. God sustains the world whole physical cosmos in existence. That's premise one. Premise two, God is a mind, or has a mind. He is a, a spirit. Well, it follows from this that the world is mind-dependent. It's, it's that simple. So you have some powerful arguments uh, in support of this view, and then you have all sorts of benefits, and this is what really won the day for idealism, to my mind, uh, when I discovered, as I mentioned earlier, that it, it helps to resolve, dissolve, or lessen uh, what we call the mind-body problem or the interaction problem. It also um, implies that we don't even have really an ontological dualism in the ultimate sense, where on a traditional view you have spirits like ours, you have God who is a mind, and then you have a physical universe. Now, how does a, a mind, <laughs> a spiritual substance, make a physical universe? You have to admit, that's, that's a, a, a problem or um, something that needs some explaining because they seem to be such vastly different substances. Well, for Barclay, again, what we call physical, physical objects. They are just ideas, sensible qualities. And as I mentioned earlier, minds naturally traffic in ideas. So God's creating a universe <clears throat> that has all of these qualities. That's very easy to understand. So you don't have um, that, that deep ontological gulf that, uh, say, a Lockean view or any other materist view that takes a, a different approach um, would have. Um, it does mean that everything that exists, everything you see as you look around you, is only continuing to exist because God is actively sustaining it. Now, that can be quite a jolt for those who are more say, deistically inclined, even if they don't think of themselves that way. For those who, who think that objects can exist on their own, um, to make the shift to the understanding that everything is constantly being kept in existence because it's constantly perceived by God, um, <clears throat> you can see why some have you know, called Barclay God-intoxicated. Right, the guy's drunk on God. There's just too much God in his system. I've heard people say that just too much God, which, if you're theologically orthodox, 
it, that really is, uh, that's a howler, right? I mean, God is the, 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 he is reality. We are existing in his reality. In him we live and move and have our being. That's one of Barclay's favorite passages in scripture, which Paul uh, quotes, you know, he's quoting a, a Stoic poet, um, quotes that with approval. And that's very much the case. Um, it's clearly the case when we, when we understand this from a Barclay and immaterialist perspective. So this provides a natural bulwark against atheism, agnosticism, any kind of religious skepticism. Um, anyone who would think, well, or wonder, and I've had my kids over the years say, how do we know that God didn't die, Dad? How do we know that he didn't create the universe and then just go away? Well, that's a question that would be intelligible only to someone who's a materist or believes that the physical world can exist on its own. From a Barclayan materialist perspective, um, it's absurd. You would know, well, you wouldn't know. That to the extent that the world continues to exist, you know that God must exist. If God did not exist or he suddenly went away or even stopped thinking about the universe, everything would disappear. You wouldn't know it because nobody would be left. But uh, this is why it really is a boon to faith, um, the, the immaterialist perspective. Um, <clears throat> a couple more points. One, and I can, I can talk extensively about each of these if you want me to la- elaborate I can, but it also solves this uh, pesky problem of induction in science. Um, how can we be confident that the future will resemble the past? Well, these natural regularities that we call laws of nature, these are just divine decrees, right? This is a way of summarizing God's consistent providential working in the universe. So we can trust induction just to the extent that we can trust God, and that is <clears throat> the ultimate reasonable trust right there. He, would, he makes exceptions only in the case of miracles, which are for our benefit anyway. So I've published an article on that, uh, Science and Christian Belief, back in the late 90s. Uh, published an article I, I wrote called Barclay's Anticipatory um, Response to Hume in His Problem of Induction. Uh, it reinforces belief in miracles. Um, it, really, miracles are no more difficult for God than his sustaining uh, and governing the universe according to um, the usual regularities. And it enhances our personal sense of the presence of God, um, which would be quite bothersome if you have a guilty conscience, right? Uh, but for those who are wholly committed to that all-perceiving, all-sustaining mind, this is very comforting. Uh, literally everywhere you look and every experience you have, you're, you're coming into contact with the ideas of God that he is actively supporting from moment to moment. And so all that implies, finally, a very aesthetic outlook on the world, that, that the cosmos is, is divine artwork and we're witnessing it. We are players on the stage. That Shakespearean character was exactly right. Um, we are all players on the stage, 
and God is writing this narrative throughout human history from moment to moment. We are uh, inhabiting and are part and parcel of the, the artwork of God. So here's a question that I have based on some of the explanation though so far. Would you say that this account would lend itself towards occasionalism where at bottom we can trace pretty much every action back to God in, in a way that most people would be uncomfortable with? I think the way I've heard occasionalism sometimes described in the negative sense is it makes God the shooter of every bullet sort of idea. Does this fit with that? Does it not fit with that? What do you, what do you think about that? Uh, I just had a chapter published in a, in a book on divine causation. Um, it was edited by Greg Gansel, who used to be at Yale. He's at Biola now. But it, there are contributions uh, in that book from a number of excellent scholars, Paul Gould and Robert Larmer and many others. And each of us write on a particular, um, a particular f- figure in the history of philosophy. I wrote on Barclay. And this whole idea of divine and human agency, it's a, um, it's a tricky one. You have three basic views there. You've got the conservationist view, which says God just keeps the world in existence and all the agency, <clears throat> you know, that we engage in. Um, <clears throat> he is, uh, it's by a kind of divine permission. He's not directly involved. Um, that wouldn't be an option for, uh, for Barclay, it'd have to be one of the other two, which are occasionalism and something called concurrentism. So the 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 occasionalist maintains that um, w- when I make a choice to pick up my coffee mug or my iPhone, my body moves. I'm making the choice, but God's doing all of the, um, you might say, manipulation of ideas that are involved in that. <clears throat> so I'm I'm not really causally impacting any physical um, objects at all, including my own body. He's doing all that, but um, and it's he coordinates my thoughts or my choices with those physical changes. Malbranch was an advocate of this. Leibniz held a view that's often called parallelism. Yeah, you could see it as a form of occasionalism, and then the other view is concurrentism, which says that human and divine agency are involved whenever I I reach for my iPhone or, or turn the page in a book or do anything else physically. Now, the problem that faces that view is what's called a, a problem of over-determination. <laughs> Why uh, postulate two or more causal agencies when, when one does the trick? So I, I work through the, the, the relevant Barclayan passages, and I I went in thinking this is a one thing this is a wonderful thing about you know doing scholarly work you you can if your if your mind is open you can <laughs> uh, be persuaded of a different view that you didn't anticipate as you're you're doing your research. <clears throat> I went in thinking yeah he, he's you know, a straightforward occasionalist, and I came out thinking actually. Um, even though Barclay himself seems a little bit ambiguous on this point, I think he's more likely to be a concurrentist. But if you want to check that out, you can read my article. But that's a tough one. I, I would say that uh, 
for the Barclayan idealist or immaterialist, both of those views are open to you. Okay. But conservationism is not. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And that's useful context. So another question I have, I, I don't know why it is the case, but I seem to see quite frequently um, idealism dismissed on theological orthodox grounds. Oh, that can't be consistent with X doctrine. Take the incarnation or take the resurrection of the body. So maybe you can help me understand how does idealism understand basic things like that? And why do you think it's actually helpful and not harmful to those doctrines? Okay, good. So um, I sometimes re- respond to the question, um, is immaterialism consistent with right theological doctrines like the incarnation, the resurrection, um, with a question? And that is, how does a Lockean idea or concept of material substratum and unthinking, unperceivable substance underlying qualities of things. How does that help us to understand those doctrines? Um, it doesn't. Um, <clears throat> the Barclayan doesn't deny anything except Locke's strange concept of material substratum. But once that is denied, the mind dependence of the physical world follows. But that is what I think Scripture invites us to affirm anyway, that the entire cosmos is completely dependent on the mind of God. Now, I've addressed in terms of consistency with uh, ecumenical creeds and Protestant confessions of faith, um, I've addressed that and just the whole question of how biblical is this uh, in an article that I mentioned earlier on the theological orthodoxy of Barclays and materialism, which is reprinted in the the second Bloomsbury volume. Um, In that article, I not only show that there's nothing about the immaterialist thesis that contradicts scripture or Christian orthodoxy, I also show that there are significant ways uh, in which scripture seems to endorse an immaterialist perspective. Um, In particular, in addition to that argument I noted earlier based on divine conservation of the world, <clears throat> passages like Colossians one seventeen and Hebrews one three. Um, you have the Genesis creation account, uh, where God speaks the world into existence. This is very interesting. Now, on a kind of standard matterist view, you just have to see that as kind of a, almost an idle um, <clears throat> metaphor or figure of speech. Uh, and a Barclayan immaterialist uses has far deeper significance. What is speech? Right? What we're doing now is we're making our thoughts public. Right? We're using audible signs and symbols to publicize our ideas. What was God doing at creation? <clears throat> That's exactly what he was doing. He was publicizing his ideas. He's making his thoughts public. And all the qualities, all of the the colors and shapes and sounds uh, that make up our universe are just so many ideas of God that he has shared with with finite minds. Um, So I go into some detail there. um, And 
and really unpacking Barclay's own idea of the universe, the physical world, as a divine visual language. It's a divine language in the sense that you have certain universals, like red and round and rough and smooth, that are combined in all sorts of ways that make up a particular, like a tree or a rock or a cloud. And so the particulars are fashioned out of, you know, these universal sensible qualities. <clears throat> so Barclay, um, in, an, in, a, in a book he wrote, which is one of the early works in Christian apologetics, called Alciphron, uh, 1734, I think it was published. He wrote it when he was in the New World for a few years. And uh, it's chapter four, where he develops this whole idea of the the divine visual language. So that fits so well with the with a biblical you know, Genesis creation account. And in my article, I unpack that. And um, yeah, it's it's very rich once you once you begin applying this perspective. Um, there's just no end to the insights and inspiration that it provides. Yeah. Well, this has been awesome. So I want to know, tell me, do you have, is there a website for you or anything like that where people can go to easily to find a list of your publications? Yeah, jimspiegel.com. Excellent. And I've got my whole CV there. Perfect. Yeah. So for all you nerds out there who want to learn more about this now, now you know where to go. I will put a link to that in the show notes. So when you're listening to this, just click it and it'll take you right there. And you can take a look at all the resources that Jim has available for you. Um, so I appreciate you you talking with us about this. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, hopefully it's encouraged you to think and move some of those intellectual muscles as you've listened. Um, we appreciate you all for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and conventional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.